0: I can tell you there's a $30 billion market. And I can tell you there's a $250 billion market because it's not like we're stealing market share or trying to take market share. We're building the market because there is so much demand. So if you look at the market, you look at the brand that's been around 13 years, you look at the platform, you look at where mental health is relative to where it used to be, which is not very far. I thought it was an extraordinary opportunity to do good. So that's the, the essence of why.
1: Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an impact multiplier CEO. In this conversation, I speak with John Cohen, who is the chief executive of Talkspace. Talkspace is a digital platform expanding access to therapy for millions of Americans. And it's brought to market innovative, on-demand tools and resources for people to take control of their mental health. He's also the author of the book called Swab, Leadership in the Race to Provide COVID Testing to America. And what I've enjoyed about this conversation is that we get deep into many aspects of the relationship between mental health and business impact. He gives us a real tour de force on what chief executives need to know about mental health and how he, as a leader, drives his own organization to achieve uh, great, impactful goals Some of the key strategies he's learned over his lifetime of leadership in the medical and mental health areas. What I really loved is his idea of the anti-permission culture, so watch out for that and uh, enjoy this conversation. It's a fascinating conversation around mental health, business, and a lot more. Hi John and welcome to the show. Thank you, good to see you. So John, what I know about you is that you have a purpose to solve the mental health crisis in the United States. By democratizing access to mental health services. So, my first question for you is Is this your, is this Talkspace? It's your company. Is that its purpose? Or is it your personal purpose? Or is it both?
0: So, no, I would say it's, it's both. It's not my company. The Talkspace is publicly traded on the NASDAQ. It, it uh, was brought out uh, about two years ago now or From uh, as a publicly traded company. I arrived about 10 months ago and Uh, not knowing much about, uh, mental, I know you know broadly about mental health, but not certainly about the market and where things are going and the model that Talkspace offers, which is, you know, now we're in all 50 states cover a huge number of lives. So, um, what has become a moral imperative for me and the company is, is on top of delivering mental health services across the board is to make sure that we figure out ways to deliver it to teens. As you may know, suicide is the number one. Is a number two cause of death in teenagers, and the, the mental health crisis in kids and teenagers is unprecedented. So that's layered on top of uh, what we do in terms of a quote I'll call it a moral imperative.
1: So going back to that sense of why did you get involved in in talk space? I heard that after a illustrious career in the medical field, you were on the board, and then uh, you were offered the job, and you thought kind of, just took it. So, but first, take us back and see how did you end up in this role? And again, like, why did you want to get involved? You could perhaps put your your emphasis, your efforts in so many places.
0: Sure. So, I was the CEO and executive chairman for BioReference, the third largest commercial lab in the U.S. I had been there, and then I got there in my team. Was there a year when COVID hit? Had a very very successful run, as we ended up doing the largest amount of surveillance testing in the US. We had all these exclusive contracts for significant number of major entities, particularly sports teams, the cruise industry, public schools. So I was very fortunate. We had a, we just had an incredible run to deliver COVID testing to the US of which I just, you know, wrote it back. The book came out in, in June, uh, which is, you know, the subtitle is, you know, leadership and, the uh, you know, quest to provide you know, COVID testing to, Clear America. But mostly my background was, was in addition to healthcare was digital health. I had built a relatively large mobile health platform, uh, at Quest before I got to Bioreference and then we built a really big digital platform at Bioreference to deliver, uh, uh, laboratory services to the home. So I had a, a really, I've had a long interest in mobile health, digital health, and that's what Talkspace is. It's a digital health company. So I had the opportunity to get on board, a privilege to, to you know, be asked to join, and then from there became the, this CEO. So there was no defined path, as I've told people, I have a, my career path doesn't make any sense at all as a vascular surgeon, but, um, but I thought that the, the opportunity in the, uh, to deliver mental health services is extraordinary in the U S and there were a bunch of reasons. First off, the telemedicine was accelerated. I think as you know, literally by 10 years because of COVID and the, the, ability to deliver a mental health solution on telehealth is higher than any other delivery of healthcare services. In fact, 65% of all mental health, well, 65% of all telehealth visits now are mental health visits. It's easy. You go online, you either could text or message or do live video, but you don't have to leave your home you can you don't have to spend a half hour, an hour going somewhere, sitting in a waiting room, getting your therapy and leave. So the convenience is extraordinary. Uh the other is the, you know, the platform for Talkspace is is turns out to be the right one, meaning we we are, as I say, we're in all fifty states, so we have a very large platform with over forty four hundred therapists. Um the most interesting part is we deliver therapy, at least half of the amount that we deliver is through texting and messaging. So Talkspace actually did all the pioneering work and all the publications and research to, to prove that you could text and message people and deliver adequate therapy. That's a big change because it means that essentially the therapists are available 24 seven. Now they don't have to get back to you if you text them immediately, but they're going to get back to you pretty soon. So now not only is it accessible, but it's, it's much more accessible 24 seven. So layer on top of that, the market from a business side is incalculable. I mean, I can tell you there's a $30 billion market and I can tell you there's a $250 billion market because it's not like we're stealing market share or trying to take market share. We're building the market because there is so much demand. So if you look at the market, you look at the brand that's been around 13 years, you look at the platform, you look at where mental health is relative to where it used to be, which is not very far. I thought it was an extraordinary opportunity to do good. So that's the, the essence of why.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So yeah. So you kind of got attracted by that pioneering edge and the fact that there was the demand was just so, so great is what I'm really hearing. The,
0: uh, the, the, other is, is probably our biggest differentiator in the market is we are now the largest telehealth mental health company. That's what we call it in network provider. Meaning if you, ha- if you get therapy through Talkspace, we have 112 million lives that are covered by the payers. So now what we do is we determine your eligibility and if your insurance covers us, you don't have to pay or you pay $20 out of pocket. That's very different than the consumer model of therapy where you have to pay two, $250 a month. So the, that change has been dramatic in the company. As you can imagine, people need therapy. Now they realize they basically don't have to pay for it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Yeah. there's a business model. I mean, there's multiple things. There's the delivery model, but there's also the business model that goes behind that.
0: Right. You know, there's nothing like accessibility and affordability to get people to use healthcare. And that's what we provide.
1: So obviously this is a podcast for CEOs and I'm kind of wondering, you know, doesn't the CEO need to bother with this stuff, right? Is this like a public health issue that is going on and it's all very good? What would you say to CEOs about this? What, what do they need to know about mental health?
0: So there are, uh, I, I, call them different verticals. So if you look at, if you just look at employers, uh, both large and small, no matter who you talk to, if you, if you go on right now and, and ask either Google or chat or something and say, what is the number one issue in 2023 facing HR executives for employers? The answer will be mental health support. The, the, the impact of mental health on employees is extraordinary, both in terms of decreasing absenteeism, increasing performance, increasing job satisfaction, decreasing costs overall to the big, to the bigger picture of healthcare benefits. The data is very clear. It's been clear for years. So, so any company essentially is going to provide needs to provide and has, it's not, it's not a nice to have anymore, it's a must have mental health support to their employees. So we provide that for large employers, small employers, universities, colleges, and schools as a way, because the platform is so accessible and, and is easy to implement. So, so that's a really big deal right going on right now. Uh, I just did a huge conference last week and had the. So again, the previous talked to about 3000 HR executives and it, it is the issue, you know, it's how do they get, not only provided as a benefit, but how do they get their employees engaged? How do they get them to actually utilize the service? So it's pretty, the, to the, you know, the, the data is just very clear on the employer side, if you look at people in general, at least in the U S one in four, 25% of people in the U S have a diagnosable mental health condition. And anxiety you know, anxiety, depression, et cetera. We don't do hardcore psych. We don't do bipolar. We don't do schizophrenia. We do therapy, but, but just the amount of people that have the need for therapy is, is, is extraordinary. So, um, so that's how we look at the business. We look at the, the people in general who need coverage, and we look at people who are in these verticals, meaning employers, universities, colleges, students who are looking for therapy.
1: Got it. so if you're a ceo and looking at this issue so first of all whether is, is there a demographic where it's most likely to crop up like is it mo, you know is it most likely to occur in your executive ranks most likely to occur in your junior people in white color blue color you know i'm sure it's kind of everywhere but but is are there particular pockets or particular trends that you see so actually
0: it is everywhere i would say the you know one of the greatest threats unfortunately is, is teens Um, I remember all your employees have teenagers. So I I like to tell people time as a CEO, you, you walk in the room and you have a meeting with your senior executives, right? And let's say there's 10 people sitting around the room. You have to remember every single one of those executives is bringing something else personal to the table that you do not know about. Did they have a fight with their spouse Is their kid having trouble in, in school? You know, are you, are you having other family issues with your brother or your sister or your parents are having trouble and that you're trying to get them in or out of a nursing home? So everybody brings these personal factors to the table that you don't know about. And, and the issue is, is if you want them to perform, they're going to perform much better if they're happier and satisfied. And the way to do that is it turns out a lot of people find that if they're talking to somebody on the outside, a therapist. It really, really helps them get through the days. We found, you know, we looked at a bunch of focus groups for, for teenagers and the number one issue they'll tell you, um, it is, we just want somebody to talk to. I, it doesn't have to be my parent or whatever, but I want somebody to confidentially talk to when I have a problem. Right? So, so it's a really, it, I tell you, I tell the people also all the time is, is you, you really have to think about what people are thinking about when you're in the room. And if you could help them, you're going to have an unbelievably more productive workforce.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point, right? So there's that second order effect, there's stuff themselves, but then also what are they going through? What else are they ju- juggling and thinking about when they're at work? So John, I want to just dive in a little bit to your own secret source, uh, as you do this, I know you've, you said that you are driven by tackling challenges head on and leading people through difficult crises. You said you run in the direction of the fire. To help solve a problem, and you'd almost describe your genius as as precision, relentless commitment to goals, the ability to drive an entire organisation against those. So, those are great um, uh, focus strengths. Can um, we a bit about like how do you deploy them? So, like you know, perhaps perhaps within in Talkspace when you came in, or you know, in a hypothetical situation, right? Of like. If there was some key goal that you feel you had to, to address, but like how do you bring that energy? What would you actually do to, um, to mobilize?
0: So you mentioned, you know, each of the chapters of the book has a section on leadership relative to what we were doing at the time. Um, and, and, and part of that was really about crisis management because the, the COVID crisis was not like any other crisis because there, to me that and I'll get back to, you know, what, what we did, what I did on the leadership side, but the, it's important for people to understand that there's a, there's a fixed crisis, I, I like to say like nine eleven, it happened. And then we had to deal with what happened afterwards. COVID was different. It, the, basically the crisis kept changing every day, every week. So it made it even more challenging. Like, how do you figure out when you're, it, it's basically the fog of war, like you Things on the ground are changing every day. It's not a, a one event. So that's a very different crisis management issue than you have an event and you have to deal with it. So I just want to, and that's why one of the quotes, my favorite quotes is COVID was where intuition goes to die because every time I thought I knew what was going to happen, something else happened, right? I, every day I get asked, well, what, what's going to happen next? And I literally started telling people, I have no idea, right? I wish I could tell you, but every time I think something's going to happen, something else. Happened. So anyway. So the leadership side, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things. One is, um, in no particular order. Um, you need to make sure that you and your team are really empathetic. And I hate to say this to the people that you're serving. And it's sort of the same thing as your employees, but I used to tell people all the time, we, I mean, we went from five, we were test. We, we got up to the the ability to test a hundred thousand people, but I used to tell people, remember every single one of those people is a patient. Every single one of those people had their nose swab. And they're sitting around waiting for a result because they're so anxious about what's going to happen. So it's very important to, to keep that in mind relative to what you're doing, because it's very easy to forget that, you know, you're in the middle and how are you going to pick up a specimen, how are you going to do this, or a mental health, how are you going to deliver the services and are the therapists going to be available, you need to re- to remind everybody every day that at the end of all this, there's a patient. And so that, that empathy to serve is very, very, you know is really important. Um, the other is, um, is the key. Well, I, I like to say is to keep current. It's part of the leadership thing. It, it's, um, is to really be knowledgeable about the field. And I, I don't want to be glib about it, but the fact is, is that most of the great ideas and everything that we've done, a lot of them came from out of industry. You know, I'd read something or we'd read something or read about, something about something and say, Hey, how come we're not doing it? That? But well, that's like a great idea. How do we apply that to us? So. Reading and being current and keeping your orbit really big about where you're getting information is really, really important for leaders because they, you will bring ideas to the table, but you need to get them from sources that are outside of your, your usual orbit. the other is, listen, you have to be comfortable living with uncertainty, you know, meaning just stuff's gonna happen, right? You have to be able to live with uncertainty and be able to make decisions without adequate data. Are right, you going to put it together? And basically what I say, you know, you're going to make a call and you're going to be wrong and you're going to be right, but you can't, you can't put yourself in a situation where you're paralyzed, right? Where you can't make a call. And that means you need to live with un- uncertainty, which is some people can and some people can't, you can probably pretty much look around your executive team and figure out who's going to be good at that and who's not. There are people who just cannot deal with making decisions without all the data.
1: So let me ask you actually john on that you I mean obviously you medical professional you've had to be very data focused and many you know or whatever and you, lots of training right and then and then you have to get into these situations where yeah it is very uncertain and you don't have the data how how did you learn to to make those calls so
0: first off as right so as i said i'm a surgeon by training and surgeons are a little bit different than the other medical people because they they they're usually good at making decisions. I, I, I tell people all the time, what you need to know as surgeons are frequently wrong, but never in doubt, right? Like we'll always make a decision. May or may not be wrong, but, but more so I use a, a metaphor, I call it the little man syndrome of this little person that is sitting on your shoulder all day long and what this person is doing is he's whispering you, he's whispering your ear. And what invariably that voice is telling you is usually the right thing to do. And you have to train yourself to listen to that voice. It is very hard for people in difficult situations to, to do that because you have a tendency to want to not make a decision or not really listen to all the facts because of prejudices that you bring to the table. And in, and in, I'll use the surgery thing as an example. You, you, you'd operate on a patient and you see the patient two days afterwards and patient may have a fever, not feeling well. And you sort of know that something's going on and you don't want to take that patient back to the operating room. You don't want to intervene, but your inner voice is telling you something's amiss and that happens a lot. You know, we we had in business, you, you just know what you think you should do, but there's all these factors that are coming in trying to prevent you and I, And the best example of that is, is in a real crisis that, that threatens your reputation, it's very, very easy to get diverted by your finance people and your legal people who are telling you all these things you should never do because you were going to get sued or it's going to have a negative impact on the company. And you know, we're going to go under and, and that's where you need to listen to your voice because you know, in the end, what you probably should do and and i've had this a whole bunch of times in my life where where you need to come out and make the right decision to protect the reputation of yourself and the company company usually despite what the financial or legal implications are going to be down the road that's a very difficult position for a lot of ceos when they face it right
1: how do you think of the courage to do that because that's that's the point of courage right you have to say i hear you know finance is telling me this legal is telling me this telling me that it's a bit risky, that there's, you know, issues, and yeah, it's the right thing to do. We are going to do it. How do you kind of like steal yourself if you like mentally to say, I'm going to go out here on a limb?
0: It's a, as I said, it's, it's, it goes to the issue of doing the right thing, right? And if you, if you stick to doing the right thing, at least in most cases, it's, it's, it's worked out, but it's not, but it is, you know, we, we had a, I talk about it. We had an episode where we, we, we had the exclusive contract for the NFL. We were testing every player and staff every day to, to get them through the COVID through the season, which was a huge deal. And we had an episode where we, we, we tested 84 players tested positive and we knew that something was wrong. It couldn't have happened. And we were accused of having a, uh, uh contamination. So what we did is we said, okay, we had a contamination. We'll accept responsibility to move on. And that was a way of protecting our reputation meaning we agree that we needed to do the right thing by the, by the customer and what was out there. And then eventually figure it out. So there's, there's circumstances like that where, um, you need to do the right thing for the business and you need to do the right thing for the client. Um, and of course you need to do the right thing relative to the, to the to the press, I mean, I had, I had a situation once where we had a possible contamination where a surgeon had a infectious disease that he could have communicated, that he could have transmitted to literally thousands of patients. Um, and I found out through a, through a different route and I, you know, my, my finance and legal team says, you know, you can't, you know, you got to protect the reputation of the company and all this other stuff. And you can't go out and talk about it. We're going to get sued. And I basically said, I don't care. And I went out and told the public, this is what happened. and told anybody that, that we would test everybody for free. And if anybody had the disease, everything else, we would take care of them. And it turns out that's what we did. And that was the right thing because despite the lawyers, despite the finance people saying it was going to kill the company, but it turned out it was the right thing to do. So the, I guess the big issue here is is in the end, doing what's right, protecting the reputation of the company and eventually things will work out. But these are not easy circumstances. I'm not telling you by any chance.
1: I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to introduce you to two transformative programs that we run. The first is Rivendell, my exclusive group of top CEOs who are committed to transforming themselves, their businesses, and the world. It's an incredible peer group and a deep coaching experience that will push you to new heights no matter how successful you've already been. The second is Impact Accelerator, a coaching programme for executives who are ready to make a big leap forward in their own leadership. It's regularly described as life-changing and no other programme provides such personal strategic clarity, a measurable shift in stakeholder perceptions and a world-class leadership development environment. Find out about both of these programmes at xquadrant.com/services. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, and, and perhaps let's double down a little bit on this this point of um, of tackling these these crises and these challenges um, and running towards the fire, because I'm sure as you were doing the, on the front lines of the pandemic, you know, you having to deal with this on multiple multiple stages, right? It would keep coming up. Um, yeah, how did you, I mean, I, I get Your message around empathy, not letting the process crowded out, um, innovating by kind of looking beyond your narrow confines as to what's going on elsewhere, and living with uncertainty. I think there are great principles. Was the situation just that everybody was almost instinctively mobilized in that situation because it was the pandemic and everyone was kind of freaked out? Or was there like a specific way that you kind of brought that, got people to really focus and to really you know, push hard at things perhaps they thought they couldn't do.
0: So, um, you know, there's an interesting, there's a lot of analysis around how people respond to crises. Um, I was very fortunate. I had an amazing team of people who really worked 24 seven and the rest of the company to deliver and, and it was a, it was a COVID crisis, right? And now it's the mental health crisis. And so. You know, people like to talk about, well, if they don't get paid enough, they're not going to be happy or, you know, their salary's not, whatever it is. I will tell you that is almost never the issue. If people really do their job are are happy because they're working for something they want to work for, that's a thousand times more important than what they're getting paid. Um, you know, anytime someone says they're moving a job because they want to get more, they want to get paid more. I always tell them they're, you know, good luck with that. Cause you're going to be pretty unhappy in a short period of time. You've got to be able to get up and go to work every day and be happy. And unless, if you really don't like your job, you should leave. If you really like it, you, you need to stay. So that, so that's in the context of you have a, a team of people or a group, you know, employees that are driven by the desire to be helpful. I mean, the reason we talk about that, the reason that people do firemen run into fires and police help people when they're in trouble and good Samaritans stop at the side of the road to help people. And people who, who do CPR and people, they don't know. And all of this is because there is absolutely some, I believe there's some innate function in humans to help other people. And there's, there's certainly some other probably dopamine surge that occurs when you feel good about helping people, but there's no question that there, there is that desire, you know, people have all these other perceptions about who they like and who they don't like and prejudices, but. When there's a crisis, all of that goes away. It's interesting, right? Just, it just all goes away. And, and I think that's what, that's what, that's really what moves teams to really, really be helpful to really, to really drive, to do the right thing more than anything else is a, is a, is a common goal, um, a common goal that they could see that they're actually making a difference.
1: Yeah, I think you're so right. So often we, we focus on the externals and it's always purpose that motivates people deep down. Absolutely. I mean,
0: it's, uh, the other, which I don't want to forget is, um, is to be effective. You also have to do what I, what I like to call is walk the walk, right? You can't just talk the talk, um, meaning. You really need to understand what's going on on the ground to be effective with your, your leadership group or whoever you're dealing with. So you can't, you can't be an armchair surgeon you can't be, you know, um, the, the leader that doesn't really understand. So the reason I talk about that is I frequently will go out in the field and understand what's going on so that I can be part of the conversation. Um. That's a really important issue, you know, there, cause you, you'll know right away when you're in the room with people who understand what's going on, who don't, because they just haven't been out there to understand, you know, you know we had a, we had a circumstance where we were, we were going to be the firm, we were going to launch, relaunch the cruise industry for COVID testing. And it was a really complicated set of events to get people tested on cruise ships. So we'll get into all the you data know, between the employers and the employees and how often and whether they, you know, needed to be restricted or not, and how often you test them, all this stuff. So, but I had never, honestly, I've never been on a cruise ship. <laughs> so I'm not a big cruise man. So, you know, I, I got on a plane, I went down and, and I, you know, I walked through the entire process, you know, soup to nuts, how they were going to get there, how they were going to this, how they were going to board the ship, where they were going to test it, how we were going to have the results, what, and and that was enormously helpful to me to understand all of the complexity of the mm. I, they could have tried to explain it to me, but, but walking the walk is really important when you're in a situation to understand what your people are talking about. Got it.
1: Yeah. So that yeah. So walk through and to get that kind of situational awareness, I guess, of what's really, what we're really talking about, right? It's easy to make business decisions from a kind of an elevated perspective.
0: Yeah. There's nothing worse than trying to be an armchair surgeon, just, you know, you could, you could put five surgeons in the room and they'll know immediately the person who's never not been in the OR can deal with that
1: problem. Right? No credibility. Exactly. Okay. Um, so John, let's shift gears a little bit. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, is how do you want to multiply the impact of your business, right? Of talk space, uh, over the next coming years. What would be an extraordinary outcome uh, for you guys? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the
0: answer the answer to that is to get as many people as possible onto the platform, which will be the big multiplier. And in general, those are some of them are going to be relatively large populations who will be able to access Talkspace. Um, thousands of people, in, it, in other words, thousands of potential customers at a time. Cities, states, uh very, very large groups, those kind of things would be the really big accelerator for us. Um that's one. The second will be I mentioned earlier, we have 112 million covered lives, which means there's hundred twelve million people in the US who now have insurance that have context covers. That number is gonna grow substantially in the next year. There are three hundred and thirty million people in the US, we're gonna we're gonna bump that number up which means that many, many more people will have access As many, many more people have access. You can imagine the multiplier effect for us is going to be really big. So I only need a small percent of utilization to have a really big impact. And so, so those are the, those are the
1: that. Yeah. And, and so what are you talking about? Like how, what's, what would that scaling look like? Is it 10 xing the number of people on the platform? I think 50%, you know, what, what does it look like?
0: No, you know, I think it's less than that. I think it's, could be, you know, three X the number of people on the platform out of four, it's a, it, it's all a matter of, as I said, is how many people use it with the benefits that are out there. Plus the bigger, the bigger buckets of, of large populations. So, and we're working simultaneously on both of those, you know, to increase the number of big populations and at the same time, increase the number of people who were eligible based on their health insurance. The other, which I want to make sure we, at least, at least I mentioned, uh, as a, on the leadership side is, is that the customer is king. Again, a little bit rhetorical, but I tell people, if you don't have the customer, you can't, you can't make them better. You can't upsell them. You can't, you can't do anything unless you have them, which means you have to win So, you know, my view is always like, tell me what you want and we'll give it to you pretty much, right. That's, you know, and and that's a, sometimes there are people that you, that you'll bump up against who do not exactly understand on your team. So, you know, I always, I am not going to be critical of lawyers, but, um, I always say there's two types of lawyers. There's the, there's your, there's your lawyer who will figure out how to not to do a deal, and there's a lawyer who will figure out how to do the deal. You want the lawyer who can figure out how to do the deal because there are a lot of the other types around who will figure out every single, which way to Sunday about why you shouldn't do this, or we'll put so many things in front of it, you'll never get it
1: done. sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Like, you know, for the two sorts of lawyers, I think you should make it, make that into a joke somehow.
0: (laughs) Uh, the second is your finance person.
1: Sometimes every,
0: yeah, you know, I, I fight I with argue with finance people all the time because, you know, they are always going to look at something and say, okay, you know, where, what's the margin of this or, you know, how much are you make? Or is it really worth it? There are other factors that go into doing deals. So you could do, you can do one deal where you're going to barely make margin or break even, but your ability to get other deals because you did that deal is enormously um, impact, it has a huge impact on the ability to do others. Um, so, so sometimes it's not just about the margin, it's about the bigger picture. And that's where the CEOs really have a big, they need to see, you need to see the big picture, you know, we, we want some, you know, this, I just say it happens all the time, right. With the finance people, like you can't do this deal cause you're gonna, it's not gonna be enough margin or it's gonna have this impact on X without seeing the bigger picture of how much more business you're going to get because you do this deal.
1: For sure. And so John, my related question is, how do you need to shift yourself to multiply your impact? Because as CEO, you, you always, you know, we're always a, a cap, right? a, a lid on our own business in some ways, right? If, but if we change our business can change. So I'm wondering, yeah, what might, what your next evolution might be on your lot long and a steep journey as, yeah, as you help the company scale.
0: So, yeah, which gets back again to the, the, the thing that people do talk about, about, um, you absolutely have to have talented people around you, right? And, and so the, the first, literally the first thing I told the team that I arrived when I arrived at Talkspace first time we in the room together, I told them that you're all, you're all here for a reason. You're all incredibly talented as far as I can tell, um, But here's the important thing is you need to, you need to develop what we, what I call an anti-permission culture. There are a lot of people who are waiting around, waiting for somebody to say, okay. You cannot have a bunch of senior executives who are waiting around for you to see or someone to say it's okay. What they need to understand is they're there. They need to do their job. You're going to back them up. They may make mistakes, which is fine. But they can't not move forward without asking your permission. And I can I was in that circumstance at one point where everything I did, the person, the CR started to wanted to approve it. And you know, then you just, you're paralyzed, right? Cause you just, so you can't exist in a permission culture. It has to be an anti-permission culture. And you have to, and you have to act that way so that people who are reporting to you understand that you're real about that, which means you have to trust that they're going to do it and, and they're going to make wrong decisions. People are just, it's just going to happen, but it's not like they're going to make a wrong decision and you're going to berate, you know, you're going to berate them or take them over the coals. You're going to say, listen, it happened. It's fine. Let's move on. I understand why you made the decision. So they need to understand that you're supportive of them. That's a really big deal in terms of leveraging your ability as a leader, because if you think you're going to make yeah. Otherwise you're, like you said, you're capacity strength, right? You just can't. I, and I, that was the first discussion I had with my team. And, and I will tell you, it's hard for some people. There are some people who really have trouble making decisions without getting approval. now, maybe it's a childhood thing, whatever I, you know, whatever, but there are, you don't, you, you gotta get away from, you, you can't have those people in the organization. You, you need people who can
1: decide. And so John, if you bring that back to you, like what's, what's your stretch in that? What's going to be a bit edgy for you? Where do you feel you might be able to, you know, shift how you do things to create a new level of results for yourself?
0: I would say the biggest thing for me is to continue to, to bring new ideas to the table, continue to read, to continue to get outside information, continue to understand the space I'm really far longer than I was 10 months ago, but there's more for me to learn, but I think. You know, the, the most important thing that I can do right now is the a couple of things, one is certainly bringing new ideas and the, the other is, um, is to continue to keep people focused on what we've decided strategy is moving forward. But I do still read a lot. I do audiobooks and read,
1: um, those are very helpful to me,
0: to what I bring to the table,
1: I have to tell you. Yeah. Well, they say readers are leaders and leaders are readers, right? It's a phrase and, uh. That's true. Yeah. And and I think you're right. there's a great there's a lot of wisdom in that and, and stretching and, and bringing innovation, right? What a great thing. Yeah. I'd like to to see your stretch as I'm bringing my creativity, right? To my full? I'm innovation. And I find a lot of leaders they do get they get bogged down in the operational surf. And and at, you know at, I, had a, I ran a session yesterday with a whole bunch of CEOs and I, you know, one of the things we've discussed, I said to them, like, you've got to optimize for creativity and not for productivity. Most CEOs are still locked into operating for productivity, but there's so many hours in the day and they've got so many big organizations that so that's not really going to move the needle. It's only when they're creative that they're going to. Yeah. Move. I so
0: I'll give you a great example, I mean, honestly, I would tell you six months ago, you know, the favorite topic of, of course, for everybody is AI. Right. And, you know, I would tell you five, six months ago, I really had zero knowledge about AI, right? I mean, you know, and then, you know, chat GPT and these other things came out. It was interesting. I wasn't sure. And then, you know, I like, I made mean, the decision, right? I, this is something I probably need to know. About, right? Um, so I dug pretty deep, figured it out, looked around what's going on, you know, read this too, and did a whole bunch of stuff and then, and basically forced the team to develop an AI strategy for Talkspace and it's had a huge impact. Now I could blame the team and say like, why did you guys not do it? But my view is, is, you know, they're busy, they're doing their thing. And that's my job. So we've now, you know, developed the whole AI strategy. We launched a bunch of initiatives now. Um, and that's how I think that's how, one of the things, how I think I contribute is, is, is that's right is I, I can't be in the room on operational issues every day to make a business before a bit. That's just not, that's not the best use of my job by any stretch. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's one of the, um, it's one of the reasons I created my CEO, uh, program Rivendell, because I realized that when you've got these very, very high-level leaders. What they crave actually is to get into rooms where they're not the smartest person in the room, where they're faced with very divergent uh, thinking from eclectic uh, leaders who are very successful in their own right. And it's why actually we decided, I decided to create the model to actually based around a couple of retreats each year. Because it's in the rooms when you get away from the day to day, you go to some different location, you kind of see people you don't spend that much time with, although actually you trust them. Uh, I find that's where innovations really can bubble up and it's really thrilling to see. So I think, uh, yeah, creativity.
0: One of the best meetings that I do attend, um, is a, is the same thing you're talking about. There's a CEO forum that I go to and it's, it's cross industry, right? It's, it's mostly, but it's, but it's truly cross industry across healthcare. Um, and yes, I think that's why the best meeting you go. I hear more interesting things there and learn more there than anything
1: Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Well, hey, this is a great, um, fascinating conversation really around, uh, you know, leading through, uh, through time to change and turbulence and crisis uh, and understanding the impact of mental health on individuals, you know, their employees, their families, um, as well as how Talkspace is kind of building this platform uh, and a different business model uh, in order to, to kind of open up things to people that have not had access to that or not been able to afford it in the past. So thank you for this discussion, John. I know you've got your book out. I don't know, just remind us what that's called, where people can find it, and also just if they want to get in touch with you or, or talk space, where do they do that?
0: Sure. So the book is called the uh, swab. S W A B, of course, had a big picture of somebody getting swabbed. Of a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to, you know, listen, 80% of books are bought through Amazon. You know, if you go to Amazon and you put Cohen and Swab in, it'll come up immediately. Um, so that's, you know, as I said, it came out the end of June. Uh, and we we have had, fortunately, a bunch of companies buy it, both sales and distributed. And they asked me to talk about leadership, et cetera. So um, the, uh, and then if they want to, if you want to find me, it's it's pretty easy. It's, it's my name at com with the dot. So it's J-O-N dot so it's j-o-n dot c-o-h-e-n at um and i'm really good about responding to emails so you know I, i'm one of those guys with my email date so uh you know that it's an easy way to find you
1: perfect so john thanks once again thank you for um uh, tackling this particular burning fire of mental health and all the insights you've shared um look forward to you. Thank, you.
0: thank you very
1: much i appreciate it bye now Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'd deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.